0: Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. Who is Charles Koch? Who are the members of The Network, a semi-secret group assembled by the Koch brothers?
1: A lot of our donors don't want to take the kind of abuse that, that I do. They don't want these attacks. They don't want the death threats. So they aren't going to participate if they have to have their names associated with it. How are the
0: super-riches priorities transforming American society? Journalist Jane Mayer spent several years searching for some of those answers. Her new book is titled Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right.
1: So they basically looked at all the widgets of American policy and politics and started to create a machine that would suit their purposes.
0: This week on Making Contact, Jane Mayer is interviewed by Atlantic Magazine editor-in-chief James Bennett at Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C.
2: I thought, um, Jane, a starting point might be, I was kind of thinking people coming cold to this book might think it's mostly about the moment we find ourselves at now in the relatively recent history um, since Citizens United of money and politics. But in fact, um, the subtitle is a hidden history, and it's a much richer story than that. Your field of vision is much deeper than that. It's a story of how a group of interests came together um, and really did methodically and systematically plan to shift the playing field of American politics over the course of a long period of time, anybody who thinks that American business has only very short time horizons and only thinks about the next quarter will find themselves reassured by this book, um, <laughs> because because they they play a it's pl- played a very long game, but. Um, and maybe the place to start is with the Lewis Powell memo in 1971 and the reaction that was taking place really in that community to what were seen as the excesses really of the 60s and the direction of the
1: country. Um, yes, I remember when I told my editor, you know, I really think this is a hidden history. He said, that's it. That, we're going to call the title A Hidden History. And it is, in some ways, it's not surprising that it's the decades that. Um, you know, that go back to when I came to Washington. It starts a little bit earlier um, to work for the Wall Street Journal covering Reagan. But in the 70s, there was actually a brewing counter-establishment movement that was very intense and not visible, I think, to most people following politics. And as you say, in 1971, Lewis Powell, the future Supreme Court Justice, gave voice to this movement in a memo that he wrote and it described what he thought was a cataclysmic turn of events. He was a a lawyer for big tobacco companies and he thought corporate America was under assault and America was taking a wrong direction. And he said, the enemy is not the kids out in the streets who are in the anti-war movement. It's not the hippies or the yippies. The enemy are the professors they are the preachers in the pulpits, they're the judges on the benches, they're the scientists, and they're the public opinion makers. It's the opinion elite that we have to change. And we're not gonna be able to change America's opinion until we change these people's opinions. And we're not gonna change them so we'll have to create our own. To, and When he was speaking about this, he wrote a memo that became public accidentally, but he'd already joined a tiny little cell group which was a private social club with Richard Mellon Scaife. Um, Scaife was the heir to the Gulf oil fortune. He was worth just unfathomable hundreds of millions of dollars during that point. He had a very strange upbringing, which is described in this book, and I love the families in this book. He'd come into all this money, and he didn't really know what to do with it. And meanwhile, his friend Powell had a lot of ideas about what needed to be done, but no money to do anything with it. The two of them linked up, and they formed the Club to Save Carthage, and they basically thought, we're gonna save America from these awful forces, and they began to fund a counter-movement, much of it in secret, much of it through philanthropy.
2: Well, and, and continue the story, actually, because it, it is interesting. They seized on the tax code itself, which they were interested in bringing down, to enable the movement that they were trying to create.
1: It was incredible. I mean, because they, so what happened is, um, Scaife created private family foundations that were created as tax dodges for the most part so that because any contributions to them became tax deductible and used those foundations to basically fund a a political movement. Now I have to say one thing in favor of these people and, and even Scaife who was a very weird and interesting character, but they did understand one thing which was that ideas have power and that if you're going to change America, you can't just do it with a bunch of 30 second ads. They looked at the whole structure of how opinion is created in America and they thought intellectuals mattered and they funded at one point, William Simon, who ran one of these foundations, says, we need to fund books, 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 and then some more books. And they are, they start churning out many of the things that have become sort of standards on the right, um, and funding it. So,
2: And funding new institutes on college campuses, trying to reach young people.
1: Absolutely. I mean, what they were incredibly systematic. So they looked at you need think tanks to balance the original think tanks. People think now of Brookings, for instance, as a liberal think tank. It wasn't founded as a liberal think tank, it was founded to be bipartisan and to promote social sciences. But they came in with a very specific political agenda and said, we're going to have our own version and it's going to come push our own answers to questions. So they came up with, well, AEI was already there, but the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute becomes the Koch's particular one for libertarians. And then um, judges, the Federalist Society becomes funded. They want to train their own judges. and." they talk about uh, there's one man who's really important named Joyce who says kids in school they're like bottles of wine they're not worth much when they're new but as they age they get more valuable and we're gonna push them up through the system and get a credential them and they will grow and the movement will keep moving on and up so uh, then I tell the story about the Olin Foundation another one of these families they realized they couldn't just break into the universities, which were not right-wing conservative institutions. And they would reject something that was too overt, like an organ transplant. And so instead, they developed something they called the beachhead theory, where you would look for one slightly conservative professor and start working with him or her, and fund that person, grow the program around them, and then keep funding it from the inside. And small colleges were not prestigious, and it wouldn't really matter if they put money into those. So they aimed for the Ivy Leagues. And um, Olin, you will notice if you are in an Ivy League school at any point, there are Olin chairs everywhere. Um,
2: I'd love to hear you talk a little more about the actual ide- ideology. They were out to, win a battle of ideas, really, with ideas that were not remotely in the American mainstream when they started, so their ambitions were really high. And maybe you could talk about it with reference. It is this, the book is written in part through the story of several remarkable families but maybe with reference to the Coke family where their ideas came well, the from Cokes, and what they were.
1: Right. So the Cokes are really a, a, an amazing story to their, own, their of their own. And Coke Industries, now that everybody's familiar with it, it used to be quite a secret company, but it's a huge private American company, the second largest private company in America. And it's selling products that everybody, I'm sure in this room uses, Lycra, Stainmaster carpet, Dixie cups, Vanity Fair napkins—you name it—it's it's everywhere. And yet, the family that founded it were so deeply far right that they were almost off the, you know, the cliff in America. So you've got the father, Fred Koch who um, was a very bright man who figured out a way to refine oil in a better way than others had. But he couldn't do it in America because the major oil companies were keeping him out. So he first went to Russia, Soviet Union, and he built the oil refineries for Stalin. Then, having done that, he went to Germany, where in 1934 and 1935 he designed and helped build the third largest refinery for Hitler and it was a refinery that could refine high-octane fuel key to the German Air Force the Luftwaffe and um, these experiences apparently when he came back to Wichita Kansas where he was living he brought back a lot of guilt particularly about Stalin and so he became one of the founding members of the John Birch Society, just virulently anti-communist. He thought there were...
2: He actually had some friends who'd been...
1: Who'd been killed by by Stalin. Stalin. Some some engineers he knew. And so what was interesting to me was he took some of that anti-communist fervor and applied it in some ways to the state in America. And he saw anything that reeked of big government... As you know, the beginning of Stalinism back in the U.S. and the boys who we think of as the Koch brothers were raised in this atmosphere of complete suspicion and and you know opposition to the United States government doing you know interfering in any way. They looked at taxes as theft. They regarded government regulations on business as um, inappropriate and illegal. And Um, Charles actually became trustee at a school called the Freedom School that was so anti-government, the FBI was looking at it as an anarchist threat. And he appears, I found this old newspaper story in the New York Times. Charles appears at the story about the Freedom School where they're talking about scrapping the Constitution because um, they don't think there should be a provision for taxes. This is the mindset from which this movement begins.
0: You're listening to Making Contact. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making contact. Now back to more of Jane Mayer, author of Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right being interviewed by James Bennett in February 2016.
2: There are actually four Koch brothers.
1: Uh, there are four. Um, you never hear about the other two.
2: Do you want to give us a little sketch of the okay, so this generation v- of the family?
1: four brothers, they broke into two teams who despised each other so, <laughs> and they spent twenty years litigating against each other, even even employing private eyes to literally go through each other's garbage as they fought over the family fortune and control of the family company. Each one of the boys inherited several hundred million dollars so it wasn't as if they were living hand to mouth as it was but they nonetheless um, fought and their, the, the dominant brother was the second to oldest, Charles, who's always been the leader in the family. He was handsome, athletic, and um, incredibly competitive and controlling. But his, he had one older brother who the other three all ganged up on at one point because they accused him of being gay. They set up a secret meeting Where they told the older brother it was a business meeting he walked in the three others were lined up in chairs Across from this is according to a sealed deposition that never became public They're sitting across from him and they tell him if you don't hand over your shares to us We're going to tell dad you're gay Charles had been doing Gathering some information about the brother who he thought was gay he'd gotten the maitre d' or whatever, the the concierge at this brother's apartment, to let him in to the guy's apartment when he wasn't there where he could snoop through his things. So they basically tried to blackmail him for being homosexual. And the older brother, whose name is Fred, stood up, said, I'm not gonna listen to any more of this, walked out of the room, and that was the end of that. But it was um, indicative, I think, of the amount of sort of ruthless competition in the family It was a um, very unhappy family, and I found part of my reporting is based on there was a secret history commissioned of the family by one brother, Bill, who's the other one you don't hear about. He detested Charles, so he commissioned a historian to do what he, a history that's called stealth, the stealth history of Charles Koch. Uh, and it, it is his, whole, his own brothers, you know, delving into politics and how it happened. And it's quite amazing, it's several hundred pages long. And the historian that he hired was one that Koch Industries had just hired a couple years before to do the company history. So the historian had access to all of the family papers and um, quite a few other things.
2: So, so bring us forward then, um, through the eighties and the nineties. How did this infrastructure grow, and what was its impact on on politics?
1: Well, so okay, in, in nineteen eighty, Charles, um, who was no longer the pr- trustee of this crazy school, the Freedom School, decided that he would launch a movement, and he was going to. He, he modeled it on the John Birch Society, which he'd been a member of. He copied the secrecy of the John Birch Society and he decided that they would try running for office. His brother was going to be vice president on the Libertarian ticket, and he ran for office, was of course defeated, but it gives you an indication of how far right they were. They were running against Reagan from the right, because they thought Reagan was a, a, a sellout um, and, and too liberal. So um, once they were defeated and realized that, that at the ballot box their ideas were not going to win in this sort of old-fashioned democratic way, they went back to the drawing board, and they studied. They, there was a, a, an aide to them who wrote a paper on how you manufacture political change in America and they were engineers and they studied the whole American political system and they figured out that you could do a sort of an assembly line. It would take the creation of intellectuals who would push your point of view you subsidize them, then think tanks who would take what they called the raw product which were ideas and turn them into marketable products which were policy papers And then you would create front groups of uh, grassroots seeming people on the streets who would militate for these policies to be implemented. And then you would push for candidates who would carry, turn them into laws. So they basically looked at all the widgets of American policy and politics and started to create a machine that would suit their purposes. And they they did. <laughs> I mean, I think if there's anything I'd like people to understand is this isn't just about elections. Um, they've won some elections, they've lost some elections, but what they've been aiming at is something much more ambitious, which is about changing the conversation in America and the way people think. If you can turn Americans, for instance, against government and make the government seem dysfunctional, that's a win, for th- a real win for them.
2: It's... A- it undermines anybody's um, a little bit anybody's concern that there's a conspiracy here to read your chapter on the 2012 election and um, how this conservative network of fundraisers at the time basically formed, at least in the primaries, a kind of circular firing squad and uh, began taking out one another's candidates.
1: Well, this is the problem Transcend, when you get too yeah. many billionaires in one room at the same time, um, and this is—it actually is. Um, a, a friend of mine calls this the Koch's magic trick, though, which is they are obviously very rich in their own right. They're each worth forty-five billion dollars now, so um, that's. They've a big, done
2: really well under Barack Obama. Actually, they've done incredibly
1: well. They started each with fourteen billion, and they're now at forty-five billion. So let's compare that to your portfolio. I don't know, um, but. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, what the magic trick is they aren't just putting money into this themselves. They've gathered around them a group, which they call the network, and they call the members of it the investors. And they won't reveal the names of the investors, but every now and then a, a guest list slips out and we get to see a few things about who's part of it. The good thing for them is it creates this tremendous Powerful kitty, which they're talking about now, being spending 889 million dollars in the 2016 election cycle. That's the upside. The downside is not all the investors agree. The glue that holds everything together is they want to keep their taxes down and keep the regulations off their businesses, and they're all anti-labor, but they but organized labor. But other than that, you know, they disagree on things like foreign policy, neoconservatives versus libertarians. Um, and and plenty of other things, and so they wind up kind of uh, canceling each other out a little bit in 2012.
2: You mentioned they're being anti-labor. I mean, from their perspective, there is an entire infrastructure on the other side, right? That they're that and they labor feel is what they mostly and, and attack. It's it's the, it's the unions. It is the liberal professors entrenched in college campuses. There's the intellectual infrastructure that did predate them. And then there are the liberal billionaires on the other side as well, right? Right. You know?
1: There's the there's you can't talk about this subject without somebody saying in about the first sentence George Soros, George Soros, yeah. Um, and You've I, d- you know, written- who I also wrote about. To be fair, yeah. I when in two thousand four he was pouring money into politics in a big way. I I profiled him as well. Um, you know what you get though. That it's interesting. Even rather than canceling each other out completely, there have been a lot of studies that show that very wealthy people have different interests from people who don't have any money. And even, I mean, I was thinking George Soros, when I profiled him, he's not a big fan of organized labor. And none of these, uh, none of them that I know, or very few of them are really pushing to, to raise taxes on capital gains, for instance. But I, I would also say, I would just say the book is called Dark Money, and it focuses mostly on secret funding. And in the dark money department in 2014, 80% of it was on the right, and 20% of it was on the liberal side. So there's a urge among journalists to try to say, on the one hand, on the other hand so that nobody attacks you, but truthfully it's misleading to say they're exactly alike because they're not.
2: Let's go to you guys. May I ask you to please ask your question in the form of a question and preserve as much time for Jane to give her answers so we can get through as many questions as possible. Please go ahead.
1: Okay. So I was born in 1947. I graduated from college in 1969. I watched as this transformation happened. Um, You haven't mentioned race. That was one way that the Republicans and the conservative Republicans were able to swing the South, for instance. These billionaires, did they worry about race or was that something that was introduced by the politicians looking for votes in the South? The the father Koch, Fred, wrote a pamphlet in which he talked about how welfare is a plot to bring blacks into the cities where they will take on the white people. Um, He was in the John Birch Society, which, of course, tried to impeach Earl Warren for Brown Brown versus the Board of Education. So there is certainly a racial element. And the thing that changed a lot for the Kochs network was Obama's election. There had been a lot of interest, you know, some interest in libertarianism and, and the far right before Obama was elected. After he was elected, this group was mobbed with people who wanted to join up there was so much more fear. And I don't know if it's racial, but um, you can just see that they and their organization, their other donors, had put tons of money into Mitt Romney, and they were shocked when he didn't win. They thought up until the day, into the afternoon of the election, that they were going to win. And so they are very smart about trying to learn from failure. And they went back, and they did a lot of research. They did a huge amount of focus grouping and went through 170,000 polls and they came to the conclusion that if they want to win over the middle of America they already have the right and they're never going to get the left but if they want that middle third as they call it they've got to be seen to be compassionate because people they discovered thought that they were greedy and (laughs) so Seriously the reason I know this is there's a tape that leaked out of a conversation where they're talking about all of this and it's it it, it you couldn't really make it up, um, and and so they discuss what they need to do, and one of the things they talk about is how they need to form improbable alliances with people they wouldn't be expected. They then give a lot of money to the United Negro College Fund. They step up this role in criminal justice where they start not just pushing for white collar reform, but for indigent defense, things that are really issues for, for poorer Americans. And they start describing their libertarian philosophy in completely new terms. And what they've done is they've done research that shows them, if you call it a movement for well-being, people will feel more kindly towards it. So Charles Koch started something called the Well-Being Institute. And he has started having seminars on the subject of well-being. And in the end of the day, usually... There's someone on a panel who says, "Well, free enterprise is what makes me feel good," and <laughs> so, so, and so. But it is—it's a big—it is a big charm offensive. I was interviewing them about it. They're spending 15 million on corporate advertising for the first time. So, uh, do the Koch brothers have money in the militia movement? I I don't know that they have any money in the militia movement, but Americans for Prosperity, which is the Koch's major political sort of grassroots group right now, has been pushing, helping some of the sagebrush rebellion that is um, to try to get public lands out of the hands of the government. So, I mean, that's maybe the closest you can see to sort of um, crossing over to that kind of radical rural movement. I mean, again, there are unusual aspects to them as libertarians. They're pretty anti-military. They don't like spending money on the military. It's expensive. And there's an old saying among libertarians that war is the health of the state. They think it builds up the government.
2: Hi, Jane. If the Koch brothers will go through each other's trash, do you worry that they'll go through yours? And I've heard some talk about your being investigated. I'll sit down and take your response.
1: Um, After the New Yorker piece came out, the Kochs didn't like it. And I began to hear warnings from people. Somebody called me up out of the blue and said, how do you feel about having a private eye?" digging into you. And I said, ha, ha, ha. You know, I didn't think it was possible. Then I saw somebody at a party who said, you know, I was asked to work for a private eye who was working for two billionaires who wanted to dig into a reporter whose piece they didn't like about them. (laughs) Um, And it occurred to me, it might be you. And (laughs) so, again, didn't think about it. But then I got a call from David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, saying, could you um, help me with this? And he'd gotten calls from The Daily Caller, uh, which is a sort of a conservative blog um, and um, from the New York Post. And they were both ready to go with a story the next day. Somehow they both had the same story at the same time that was um, going to say that I was a plagiarist. They were f- there were four instances of sentences in the last ten years that were like other people's sentences, sort of. So I looked at it, and I thought, well, this is ridiculous. If you're going to steal something, it's not going to be this. But um, I knew it wasn't right, but I also knew I was going to be ruined by the next morning if I didn't do something about it, because they were going to go with it the next day. And so I um, got a hold of the writers whose work I was supposed to have pilfered. One of them was a Washington Post reporter who said, not only did you not steal from me, you credited me in the next frigging sentence. Um, And... But anyway, absurd though it sounds, it was scary. And each of the writers was wonderful, stood up, gave an on-the-record statement saying this isn't true. And the Daily Caller and the New York Post decided not to run the pieces because they weren't true. Anyway, it took me three years to figure it out. And what was behind it were several of the highest-level Coke operatives in Washington who had, were working with a private eye in New York who turned out to be the former police commissioner. Howard Safer. And they had dug through my dating years and God knows what. But anyway, this is what they came up with. So, um. please. What about their role in the climate change issue? It's huge. I mean, this is if you're looking for places where there is an impact, it is on this issue. They've worked this whole system that they've got of think tanks and everything else. They've created so much confusion. In a four-year period, half a billion dollars went into think tanks and experts and media dissemination and everything else, suggesting that climate change wasn't happening, or if it was, it wasn't man-made, or that if it was both those things, any solution to it would be so expensive we can't afford it. And the Kochs literally, their organization, Americans for Prosperity, just took out any Republican who was in favor of doing cap and trade. And also very, very, very conservative Democrats in primaries and, you know, the, so much money was against them. I mean, it's kind of stunning to look at it. But. All
2: right. Well, uh, thank you all for your questions. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Jane. <laughs>
0: That was Jane Mayer, author of Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right, being interviewed by Atlantic Magazine editor-in-chief James Bennett in February 2016. Special thanks to Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C. for use of that recording. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. To get our podcast, check out our website, radioproject.org. That's also where you can download past shows and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Kwan Booth, Jasmine Lopez, Monica Lopez, and Marie Che. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.